This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Simmons, founder and director of Marketplace Ventures, a startup and scale-up business advisory and community of investors. We discuss things from an investor's standpoint when it comes to incubating the idea or accelerating it and its journey all the way through to an exit. Tony shares his views on three things he looks for in founders and their startups and how that increases the chances of success or lowers the chance of failure. We break down what a startup is versus scaling up and how that applies to innovating within the healthcare sector, regardless as to whether you're doing it for the first time or looking to innovate from within a mature, established healthcare business. Tony's lived experience as a business builder, as a value creator, and a commercial background really shine through in this discussion. Let's jump in. Well, hey, Tony, uh, thanks for making the time today. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. I wanted to get you on and talk about Marketplace Ventures and uh, some of the great work you've done there in establishing a community and, uh, and incubating some ideas. Uh, but before we get into that, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what leads you into founding the Marketplace Ventures. Well, originally I started out my career as a, as a lawyer, uh, did that for a couple of years in law firms and then went in-house during the dot-com boom and saw a lot of intellectual property and technology uh, from a business perspective as a, as a legal representative. Always had an entrepreneurial itch, which I scratched a couple of days before my 30th birthday, much to my parents' horror that I left the legal profession after being in it for a few years. And almost 10 years to the day after starting a business that was sold uh, into an ASX company. So provided me with a, a really good exit and um, ticked a number of boxes. Um, but I really wanted to stay involved with fast-moving businesses and startups and uh, the seed stage of uh, business is really fascinating to me. I, I believe you can add a lot of value at, at that point in time and Marketplace Ventures was set up and designed to do all of those things, work with fledgling businesses and you know great ideas and try and get in early to companies with good founders to not only create value for them, but also create value from an investment point of view for Marketplace Ventures. Did that with, uh, you know, a range of different successes and failures over a four-year period. And um, you're still using that as a primary vehicle to get involved in companies, advise businesses and help grow businesses into uh, larger scale-ups. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think um, the fact that you've actually been there and done that yourself adds a lot of value to working with somebody like yourself. So you're not you're not coming at it from a theoretical standpoint or an academic standpoint. You're seeing it from your own lived experience and um, all those trials and tribulations that um, we go through in trying to actually create businesses and grow businesses. That's something that really comes through in the way you position yourself. Uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, you touch on something that uh, in this ecosystem is is really prevalent. There's a lot of people who provide young founders advice and, you know, without wanting to disrespect anyone, it's a bit like playing poker with monopoly money. I might have used the analogy before. It's very easy to go all in with your chips when all you've got to lose is uh, a bit of monopoly money. 
But uh, when it's your own money and you're faced with your own uh, set of decisions and money's on the line, you behave very differently. You know, that's what makes uh, having been there, the understanding and the empathy of that decision-making much more real. I remember uh, an earlier company that I was involved with, one of my uh, co-venturers, we sort of remarked uh, at one point on how good you become at making decisions when you don't have money and uh, and you have to sort of <laughs> weigh up <laughs> and you have to yeah. weigh up how best to use your resources right now in order to get to the next level. So I really resonate with what you just yeah. said there. You can't make too many mistakes, can you, in that because, you you know, you run out of money very quickly, you, you're back to getting a, a job. Um, so you really do think much more cautiously and strategize a lot harder when it, you're faced with that. I agree. It also opens your mind up, I think, to um, other ways. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I recall in my younger life, my parents weren't um, educated or professionally developed. Um, so, you know, they they'd sort of gone through the school of hard knocks, so to speak, and, and so yeah. I learnt... I learned the lessons that way and then subsequently went to university and learned the academic, you know, view of the world. And I remember that old saying, in the real world, there'd always be uh, that qualification when we're talking about the theory or the um, academic content. And then inevitably the in the real world, I guess, qualification around how, hey, you know, in the real world, things might actually be different would be uh, said a lot. And, and um, you kind of hear that, but you don't actually fully live it unless you're doing it and you're actually in that position where you get hurt really easily when you make bad decisions with cash and you start yeah. to think about how you can actually do things that are good for you know promoting your product and your services without necessarily needing a lot of cash you become a little bit more creative what do you think what's your journey been like there absolutely yeah when you when when money is a finite or limited resource you have to be very creative and you know they talk about hustle they talk about um being your best advocate, pulling out all stops to to get publicity, that's absolutely the case. I mean, if you've got limited funds, you don't engage a, a PR company, you become your own PR company, you pick up the phone, you call journalists, you try and arrange coffees, you try and get free publicity any way you can. So if you had lots of money, you, you'd engage a PR company and say, I'll oh, go fix this for me. But when you don't and you've got a good story and you want to share it, you, you do get creative. You do try and come up with novel and innovative ways to sell the message. Um, and that really is a function of, you know, how good a salesperson a, a founder is, how much they want uh, an outcome and uh, are they prepared to not only put, you know, the business on the line but then their reputation on the line by going out and saying, hey, my name's Tony, I've got something that I think you're really going to love. Yeah, I, th I think that's definitely key. And it kind of opens up, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you is in, in broad terms, and I know this is a hard question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But what, what would you say would be, you know, your top three things that you'd look at when you're evaluating the chances of success for a given startup? That is the dark art of uh, trying to pick <laughs> a founder. And if I knew the answer to that, I would have been uh, successful in every business. But I think one of the things as I've sort of seen more and more founders, the number one thing that starts to come out for me is the art of storytelling, the art of the why. It's funny that I say that because five years ago it wouldn't have even appeared on my list anywhere. I would have thought, oh, that's irrelevant. If you just want to make money and you want it enough, you could probably, that could probably be a big enough motivator. But I don't believe that anymore. I actually believe those who 
have a North Star, have a why, and are able to articulate that, are able to do one thing really well. They're able to bring people along on their journey and align them with their why. And that means investors, it means customers, staff, it means everyone they touch and influence, they can do so because they have a story. They can tell that story and they can align people to their why. So that's the number one thing that I think I look for now. Number two is someone who doesn't think local, someone who thinks global. You know, it's all well and good to say, oh, we could, you know, pick up a little bit of market in uh, Fitzroy or Paddington or, you know, Lawley or Mount Lawley or wherever. But the ones that say this can be a global business from day one, that means that they're thinking about, okay, uh, I want to I want to take on a global market. That's exciting from an investment point of view because you want to get big exits, you want to be involved in big opportunities. The last thing I look for is someone's ability to be able to sell. Now, there's a lot of different people who say, oh, if you don't have a technical skill, then I'm not interested. Uh, you've got to be a technical person or you've got to have a co-founder. To me, that's not how I think at all. I don't have any technical skills. I've never cut a line of code. I was not very good at mathematics. I was horrible at anything scientific at school and I just wasn't interested. So from that point of view, being a software founder and software investor, maybe for some people it seems like a disconnect. But to me, software is a means to solve people's problems and being able to articulate what the problem is and what the solution is and solve a problem means that you can get people to code that up in a way that develops a really good software platform but you've got to be able to sell that. You've got to be able to say to someone, here's a problem, here's a solution, I'm the one who can fix it for you. And that skill to me is 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 vitally important. That's a pretty uh, good crack at that, Tony. So um, good storytelling. So from that point of view, you're talking about a certain type of person. And, uh, you know, hi- historically in uh, kind of the evolution of technology and where it's gotten to today, um, you know, you could sort of talk about some key storytellers um probably people like steve jobs get um, a lot of recognition absolutely you know yep for the storytelling so is storytelling teachable or is it is it something that's just innate is there an x factor in a certain founder i might reframe that question and say (laughs) is entrepreneurship or entrepreneurialism teachable so all those skills that make up a, a good hustler a good business person a good entrepreneur are those skills innate or teachable? Um, and look, I have a fairly strong view on it that they're innate. You can't teach everyone to be an entrepreneur. If you have a room full of a thousand people, there will only be some of those people who are cut out to be uh, successful software entrepreneurs. No question in my mind. People can get better at all of those skills through practice and whatnot. And someone might end up being a very good public speaker. But put someone in a room with four people um, and try and get them to emotionally connect and empathise and get the goosebumps on the back of people's neck standing up, that's an innate skill. That's a storytelling skill that some people just have and you can get some people and you could spend a million years with them and they'll never be able to do that. So that's an innate skill, being able to connect with someone on almost like a, 
a spiritual level and get on their wavelength and bring them along for the ride, I don't think that's a skill that can be taught. And likewise, I don't think some people can be taught to get out of bed every morning at five in the morning, start running around and and start selling their product and picking up the phone and cold calling because they're desperate to be successful in business. Uh, I think there are certain factors in people's lives uh, that enable them to do that, need, necessity, desire, hunger, all of those things. But there are others who come from a good, comfortable existence who, no matter what the situation, will never pick up phone and do a day's worth of cold calling. And it's not the skill that can't be taught to cold call. It's the desire. It's the hunger. It's the, I don't, I don't give a stuff. I'm, I'm going to do this anyway. I kind of relate to what you're saying in, in maybe from a, um, a slight variation of it, and that's been uh, more from cooperations form in foundations. So when you actually get a group of founders together and trying to figure out what skills and capabilities and talents uh, each of the people have and how synergistic that is, how effective that is when that group of people come together. It might be two founders, it might be three, or it might be four. It can go well at an individual level, but when you start actually adding other people into the mix, sometimes that chemistry just doesn't quite work, even though you'd think that when somebody has a particular strength, let's say there's somebody who's a really good storyteller, uh, but perhaps not as good at you know identifying the problem or communicating how to address the problem uh, and uh, you know be yeah, effective at yeah. selling. What's your take? I, I remember this uh, terminology. It's not used as often these days, but there used to be this sort of uh, term that uh, I still use anyway. It's called founder syndrome. Within a, a, a startup and anything that moves quickly, there are periods or phases within a business's life where different skills are required. I know myself that my phase is within the first three to four years, I add a lot of value. Once you've got a business that's systemized and productized and commercialized and it needs to grow, you know, a couple of hundred percent year on year and it's just a scaler, I don't have much that I can add to the equation. And I know that I'm not interested in that phase as much as this startup phase where it's all a blank canvas and blue sky where my skills of being able to sell and organize come to the fore. The thing is for some people, they get very successful with their idea. So they're a technical person or a founder with a great idea and they get investment or they get initial sales and the business starts to build really quickly. And the reality is the quicker you're successful, the more likely a founder is to get pushed out. Why? Because you're successful, you raise money or need more money, you dilute uh, your shareholding, you dilute your importance, you bring smarter people around, people who have more experience, who can grow the business and tell the stories better and all of these skills that uh, you might have had in that phase of just being able to get that spark into a, into a business, those skills may not translate into uh, someone who can grow and scale and organise a, a bigger team. If you think about founders that come together as friendship groups that found businesses and someone ends up being the CTO and someone's the CEO, what is the likelihood that three people who go to school together are actually the three best people to fill those positions in a company? The answer is very, very slim likelihood. And so as you grow and those skills required grow exponentially to be able to execute on those roles, founders often become uh, redundant very quickly. And as I say, the more successful you are, the quicker a founder can find themselves in a position where they don't have the skills. 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you tend to see that, um, I know there's exceptions to every rule, that generally tends to be the case where, um, uh, you know, the ambition outweighs the uh, individual's ability to evolve in line with the size and scale of that business. What really motivates you um, could be uh, everything that is involved in those early stages. But uh, as things start to mature and become more repetitive and, um, and necessary, you know, to be doing re- repetition inside the business, they're not as exciting to the person who was really the creative at the beginning who was seeing that big vision and being able to tell that story. And I think that's where the founder can continue to play a central role for an organisation, even if they're hands-on um, aspects of day-to-day operations can cease, the founder can still be the visionary, can still be the figurehead, can still be the person that draws people into that company, into the story and aligns people with, you know, what that company means and what it represents. So despite the fact that the founder may not have a role as a CEO or some kind of executive role, they can still be the person standing out the front attracting others to the business. Knowing, uh, you know, the strengths of yourself will help you identify, you know, how to surround yourself with people who are able to do the things really well that perhaps you're either not interested in doing or are not as good as. So it's, it's picking the right people. Correct. Yeah, so it makes a lot of sense and I think that's important regardless as to whether it's an innovative um, health provider service or whether it's a um, health tech uh, innovation that's going into the... Um, uh, the, the digital health uh, sector, uh, the, the foundations are pretty key. It's important to understand, you know, what, um, what qualities and um, skills and capabilities underpin a really good story and a really good vision that excites people and wants people to get involved with it. Yeah. I think, you know, with any business, um, 80% of every single business is the same and 20% is that technical magic that makes that business different so whether that's software or product there's some layer or 20 percent of it that's different to each other business but 80 percent's the same you've still got to have rent you've still got to have staff you've still got to manage them well you've still got to pay taxes and all of these structures and disciplines within a business that make up the core they're pretty much transferable across each business you know and you can see that because you have big accounting firms that work for businesses across all verticals. Those things are the same. Profit and loss is measured the same. Balance sheets are the same. But it's the technical aspects of how you engage with the outside world that's different. So what I'm looking for is, you know, a level of understanding in the fundamentals of a business, and that's what Marketplace Ventures is about, making sure that those things are rock solid so that the business can focus on developing that 20%, developing that into something that's attractive, something that they can sell and do that really well. Because then the business can take care of itself because all the foundations are in place. Yeah, no, it's really good advice and a good good perspective to be taking, uh, I'd say, as well. So is there, there's a little bit of jargon in, uh, in the sector behind the scenes when you're looking at things through the lens of an investor and an advisor uh, from that point of view. Some of the key things that um, you talk about is the journey from startup to scale up. Do you want to sort of break down what the startup phase is versus the scale up phase? Yeah, sure. The, I mean, the startup phase is exciting. You know, anything's possible. You you come in with an idea and, and think you can uh, take on the world, and you know that unbridled 
enthusiasm and belief is great to be around. Uh, people have ideas, they've developed technology, they've got their first clients, anything's possible. So to move from that to a business, you know, there's a couple of things that fundamentally can't shift. You know, you need revenues to exceed costs. At some point in time, you have to get to profitability. That could be a decade with a, with a technical platform. No problems if that's the plan, but you've got to make sure you've got the right amount of money coming in from investors in that case to reach those goals. Or you could get to cash flow break even really quickly. Once you do that, how are you going to grow? How are you going to continue to create growth and value for yourself and for shareholders and, and anybody else? So the first thing you have to do when you look at that is, again, understand the, the founders or, or the person's goals. Where do they want to be in five years' time? What do they actually want to achieve? Where do they want to take that business? What are they prepared to do in order to do that? And that can help set a path for the business to scale. What a scale-up looks like for a consulting business and someone who only wants to earn $200,000 a year, that scale-up looks completely different to a software-as-a-service business that wants to take on a global market. So every business, again, has to look at that 20% again of why it's different and what factors that look like and chart a path from uh, chaos and excitement to a structured business with, you know, the right disciplines in place and the right people in the right seats doing the right thing at the right time. And so I'm quite often the boring guy. I'm, you know, the, the realist that says, okay, that's great, terrific. You've got clients. You're going to take on the world. Here's a structure. Here's a framework that you can work towards putting all of those things in place so that you can actually stop spinning wheels and really focus on the growth. And uh, that is, again, where my skills come in is saying, okay, that's all great. Let's put one foot in front of the other. Yes, you can get to a million clients, but before you do that, you need to hire the right people or have a payroll system or make sure your expenses are in place or have a technical roadmap built out that you can follow. You might have to reforecast all of these things on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, but you need to have those disciplines to be able to do that, measure it, understand. So moving from startup to scale up is about learning business disciplines, is about organisational skills that enable you to um, put money in and multiply it out. You've not just laid the foundations, but you now have some momentum in and around your product and um, and starting to see some uh, really positive signs from the market around you. And so perhaps just uh, open that up a little bit more in terms of the scale-up. Is it something that can happen in um, straight off the back of um, cash flow within a business or is that sort of a trigger point to actually be thinking about how to actually bring investors in at a certain time to support that scaling up? Look, I think the answer to that is yes and no. Again, each sort of business has to turn a little bit on its own set of circumstances to some extent, but there are markers along the way or milestones, if you like, that are a pointer to uh, certain things being achieved and, and businesses moving into different phases. So definitely one of those things is being cash flow positive. That enables the business to do a range of things under its own steam without external pressures such as, you know, hire and fire people, choose to launch different products, choose to go into different markets, you know, really choose how to use its profitability in a way that helps its growth. If you're looking at a business that initially in the startup phase is looking for product market fit, 
you know, when do you know when you've got that? And again, some venture capital companies will use markers of a million dollars of revenue or recurring revenue to say you're probably moving out of seed type stage and into series A type stage, which some consider a marker of you're moving into a product market fit scale now. We know it works. We know there's a market. Now we want to scale it across multiple markets or scale within a given market or territory. So in looking at these things, you're trying to identify, yes, the business has gone through a startup phase. It's sort of shaken out any of these um, questions and it's moved into a business that has a product, has a market, knows how it's selling it, and now just wants to sell it to more and more people. Yeah, one of the uh, definitions that uh, I remember through uh, my journey has been, you know, in effect that, you know, in the early days, if um, delivering a good or a service costs you, for example, $10, but you can actually achieve a lower cost for the same sell price, you're increasing that contribution that's coming from the good or the service. And that's a good sign of scaling at that point in time because you have figured out how to actually provide the value of that good or service to your customers uh, for a uh, way more productive cost, as well as having achieved a much greater share of the potential market that you're actually trying to serve. Absolutely. And and again, you know, taking that that lesson and, and looking at it from a purely economic perspective, you're also on top of the demand and supply side factors of of the business. So you know that by pumping more uh, product into the marketplace, you know there's a market for people to buy it. Um, Because if you flood a market with goods that no one wants to buy, then your unit cost might actually go up. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to flavour this a little bit more towards the health sector because we've got quite an audience uh, in and around healthcare, uh, the provision of healthcare services, as well as the innovation of um, health tech uh, and healthcare services. You know, healthcare generally is... um, it's a personal services business. You know, there are human beings who are talking to or putting their hands on or working with other human beings. And so the concept of um, scaling within a healthcare provider is probably not as obvious, but there are some examples in the industry. You know, for example, in recent Australian history, we've seen um, organisations like Zenitas Healthcare who have brought in investors uh, behind the scenes and have started to develop an acquisition strategy where they are buying yeah. into businesses and, um, you know, that could be an insight for people to understand that just producing a piece of software isn't, isn't always the way that you can grow a, a really successful business from a technology standpoint. Another way of doing it is to actually buy service businesses, and particularly in healthcare, and figure out how to make them more productive and more scalable so that you actually lower yep. the actual cost of running that network of health practices or, or health locations, healthcare locations, by streamlining, using technology and potentially, you know, buying technology and just putting it together in a a much more efficient and effective way and or developing uh, some aspect of that technology or system that actually provides a competitive advantage for all of that network of um, healthcare provider or points of care that are bought up. Yes. Yeah, and I think um, within healthcare then, you know, again, I go back to business fundamentals. So, if you've, you're in a practice or, you you know, even in your own environment, if you see one person as a patient or uh, as a, you know, you're a service provider and they pay you $60, 50 of that might be used up in costs and 10 might drop to the bottom line. So you can see more people and each time 
you do that, you're reading into the amount of hours you've got in a day and for each extra person you see, 10 might drop to the bottom line. But if in that $50 of cost you can take out $2 by having a better software or having a better solution or getting economies of scale or whatever that looks like, then you might get to $12 dropping to the bottom line for every patient you see. So that can improve your business, as you say, Yanni, your competitive advantage, all of these factors by focusing on, okay, well, I can be better in my own service, my own business, just by focusing how much I get in at the top, but how much of that money gets chewed up on the way through to the bottom. And that's a lot of things that uh, get missed by business owners, small business and practitioners is how do I get more efficient? How do I manage out a lot of these costs? Is it technology? Is it someone else that's offering a a different solution, outsourcing, whatever that may be? Focusing on those factors can actually help a business grow. I think that's um, that's really good guidance there. And I think that's the value of having uh, access to somebody like yourself, Tony, from an advisory standpoint, really developing that kind of relationship between, uh, let's say, a business owner who, whose business, perhaps they thought it was about delivering healthcare services all day, every day, but then started to realise that they're actually running the business of healthcare. And yeah, um, yeah. You know, being able to deal with those uh, system side of things to be able to make things more productive, more efficient, more effective, where um, forming the right relationships with advisors and potentially uh, prospective investors could actually help that business owner be able to articulate and translate what it is that will make that business run better and perhaps give them an opportunity to start to scale the business of healthcare and produce yeah. results that perhaps they never thought were possible. No, absolutely. I think communities where uh, you're engaged in and ecosystems where you're able to understand what other colleagues or contemporaries are doing in, in your field gives you a great exposure to the new things coming onto the market, what might represent best practice, what things, you know, as a third party independent looking at your business, what things they see that you're doing right and what things they see that you could potentially improve. All of these types of things for any practitioner open their eyes to new ways of doing things. And as you identified, sometimes the healthcare sector is a little bit conservative. I remember years ago, one of the things that got introduced was sending SMSs to people, reminding them that they've got a... uh, an appointment coming up. I mean, now it seems almost standard, but what it did for businesses is it reduced the amount of no-shows, it reduced the amount of cancellations. And when you've only got a certain number of hours in the day, making sure you've got a full book is essential. So this type of technology that may not have been uh, evident to people straight off the bat, you know, you see other colleagues and people doing it in your ecosystem and it's having a great impact on their business. It means they're getting 5% no-shows or cancellations rather than 30%. That's massive to have that. So, you know, people have to be able to look at their practice and their business, compare it to others, get involved, speak to people, get advice on uh, how they can do things better if they, if they truly want to be effective, efficient or grow to scale. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see a ton of um, opportunities for uh, healthcare providers and the business of healthcare to be transformed and reimagined, modernised using digital healthcare innovation and working with ecosystems like Marketplace Ventures and some of the collaborations around Health Tech X. It's, it's sort of it's one of those things where 
when you look at it through a different lens, and it's not for everyone, growing a business and trying to do, for example, a um, roll-up of um, certain types of health practices, whether it's, you know, psychology or podiatry or chiropractic, physiotherapy, you know, remedial, occupational therapy. There's, there's so many different opportunities, I think, in healthcare to be thinking about how to scale it and how to actually uh, produce uh, really big and exciting businesses within that space. But it's not for everyone, right? There's going to be a certain percentage of people within the industry who really have that big vision and really have that drive and determination to be able to think beyond just running a, you know, their own location. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, Everybody's got their own definition of how they want to um, live and how they actually want to express themselves in life. But for those, I think, you know, uh, opportunities to work with people like yourself, Tony, Marketplace Ventures, where there are people out there uh, who have that drive and determination to um, think beyond, you know, the, uh, uh, the health provider service they're providing in a given location and start to think about expanding further out or perhaps bringing in translation of an idea uh, into software or into some sort of technology. That could still be a really good fit, you know, to um, try and bring yourselves together to be able to talk through that and really gain the experience that you've developed in your own ecosystem and potentially some of the relationships that you're developing as well, Tony. One thing that I have specifically in mind there is um, you, you've done something really um, cool uh, in developing the uh, Hatcher program. Do you want to do you want to talk about that a little bit and how that could could work in healthcare? Yeah, look, I think I think it's like anything. You know, when you've got an idea or you want to be innovative, you're always looking for ways to test what you're thinking. You don't really want to go and throw a million dollars at something and not really understand whether that's going to get any payback. So the thing about what, you know, Marketplace Ventures is trying to do, you're always trying to get a return on investment, whether that be two years down the track, 20 years down the track, you're always looking at ways that, you know, you can get a return on investment for your effort. Now, within technology, there are things that come along that are very disruptive to industries. Now, some people, as you say, that some people are going to have those ideas and they go, wow, this is the way healthcare should be done. How do you test that? How do you take something that you know or you think you know to be the way of the future? How do you test it? You've got to take it as an idea. You've got to turn it into a company. You might have to build some technology. You might have to transform uh, your clients in a way. And all of this can be really uh, very difficult and sound like a lot of upheaval for people. So Hatcher is designed to say, okay, let's work with this idea, what does it mean? How do you take an idea, turn it into um, a product? How do you then find a way to continually evolve the technology set? How do you find a way to get into customers and show them a pathway to do things better? All of these things take structure, they take discipline, they take time to prove out. And what you're doing is rather than saying, yeah, we're going to throw a million dollars at this and see where it lands, you're saying, I'm going to throw a million dollars at it and see where it lands, but I'm going to give it the best chance of success. And the way I'm going to do it is by measuring outcomes. I'm going to measure the technology stack and see whether it's getting the right kind of feedback. I'm going to measure the transformative impact of this on a business and see whether it's getting that business the right kind of return on investment that makes investing in it as a product worthwhile. You may end up with nothing which is why Hatcher was designed for bigger corporates with bigger budgets generally. 
but it's testing that innovation pathway, it will actually yield a return. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think um, an important point to make there as well, Tony, is that um, the program that um, you've put together there with Hatcher is it doesn't necessarily apply to a, you know, a startup that has never done anything before. That could be one type of founder or group of founders who might join the program will come to you and say, hey, we've got this idea, but they're actually starting from a complete, you know, greenfield state. Whereas you're also open to working with larger corporates who have established businesses, they're already operating in a particular area really well and and very strong in that particular space, but they have uh, a need to innovate adjacent to that business or to extend that business into new markets. And so, you know, the startup idea that could be hatched could come out of a mature business as well. Is is that the case? Have I got that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, the... The bigger corporates have a lot of clients, but because they're serving a lot of these clients, the innovation um, pathways are quite often constrained, you know, because all of their energies are spent on um, serving their existing client base and keeping them happy and trying to grow the amount of money, generally speaking, they get out of each existing client. So it constrains their innovation. And Moreover, you know, why invest a million dollars in something that could be really... uh, a new efficient software product that might cannibalise your existing revenue streams. I mean, it's a dangerous thing to do. You could end up with something that is much more lower cost, much better for customers, but makes you much less money. Now, that's a dangerous thing for an established corporate to do. So what you have to do is say, well, that might be the case, but if you don't do it, what's the likelihood that someone else is going to do it and start eating into your business? Now, I remember years ago talking to a big chain of hotels and they said, Airbnb will never affect our business. You know, it's we're just playing different games. We're in different spaces. And I said, well, not really. You're renting beds essentially and that's what Airbnb is doing. Eventually that's going to come and bite. No, 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 it won't bite. Well, we all know what happened there. Airbnb came along and completely disrupted the tourism industry and provided a completely different product and pathway for people to go and get beds. Uh, it has impacted uh, hotel numbers in, in many places. It's impacted whole cities and the way um, housing's viewed. So corporates then have to look at these things and say, you know what, this is going to disrupt our business. This is going to change the way we operate. How do we get a piece of it? How do we become a big stakeholder in it before it really impacts our bottom line? And it's looking at that critically and it's looking at that pathway and saying, you know what, this might cannibalise your revenue, but at least you're going to have all of that cannibalisation. If someone else does it, you're not going to participate at all. So um, for those corporates, it's a process they have to work through to understand the risks uh, and the downside. If they bury their head in the sand, well, you know, they'll end up going the way of Nokia. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many examples of that. And I think I think also because technology uh, has, um, in effect, gone exponential in terms of just the abundance of it and how quickly new ideas are being presented to the market, what perhaps, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago when we were looking at um, history, we were seeing, for example, that perhaps a business that's in disruption took a long time. But in this day and age... Uh, the timeline between a a new idea emerging in the market that your consumers, your customers are seeing because there's never been 
this level of abundance of information in the hands of the, the consumer. So the consumer's um, uh, spoilt for choice, rich in information, constantly being uh, bombarded with advertising and um, influence um, out in the space. Uh, so, you know, their mindset is constantly being made aware of um, these other choices and the very nature of competition is basically to encourage that. Not paying attention to that and being able to respond quickly and with agility with a method like um, uh, what you put together with Hatcher, I think um, is naive in this day and age. And I think there's one other factor, you know, consumers like anyone else, uh, like a business, is always looking for something that's more efficient, something that's less of a time sink, something that costs less or, you know, uh, doesn't cost more. But more and more because of this software, because of, you know, the smartphone and all the apps, people are also looking for a better experience. They're looking for something that's seamless. They're looking for something that is not just uh, gives them efficacy, it gives them an outcome, but it gives them a back scratch along the way. It gives them a good feeling about the choices they've they've made. So in healthcare, you know, it's all very well and good to, to get an outcome, but people will opt for an outcome that is more efficient. People will opt for an outcome that makes them feel better along the way or, uh, you know, they enjoy the choices they get to make along the way. I absolutely agree. Well, one last uh, question, Tony, more to uh, uh, get into your your vision of the future. In terms of, you know, reimagining, you know, healthcare and or health tech, given what Marketplace Ventures is doing and how it's doing it, I know you don't focus just on on healthcare, um, you look at a variety of different industries, but given what you know about technology and how fast it comes out and what have you, what's your vision on, you know, what the world might look like in five to 10 years time with (laughs) Marketplace Ventures having fully extended its wings and flying high? You know, I feel the trends and I sort of intimately sort of know or feel like I know where the, the, the zeitgeist is at. And I think the smartphone has changed the way people interact with everything. So if I look at healthcare, I think the smartphone will open up a lot more telehealth. It'll open up your ability to access practitioners more on demand, more at your choice, uh, wherever you want. Um, And this globalisation pathway that we're on through technology will mean that, you know, at some point in time, if I want to see a practitioner in, uh, in India, I'll be able to use my smartphone and technology to access them. I don't know when that'll be, but that's the way I see things going. And technology, the smartphone, open up all these possibilities and uh, globalisation is uh, is what it's driving towards. We might live in the real world, but we've also constructed lives in the digital world. And so in a sense, we have these avatars of self, we have these relationships, we have um, services and content being provided to us. I think healthcare needs to modernise with that in mind and actually be... Yep. Um, very, um, very dialed into the fact that the consumer or their patient, their client, however they relate to it, is receiving services through those channels in other sectors. And so it's conditioning yep. them to expect it from healthcare as well. And if you look at, you know, if you look at uh, people, for example, who are going through uh, some kind of recovery for, a, you know, maybe they had a car accident, they're looking for recovery, there might be someone who offers incredible online recovery videos or engagement and they could be putting themselves on 
social media channels to market. So, you know, why couldn't you have a healthcare provider that's an influencer across LinkedIn or Instagram or even have their content? You know, there's these incredible platforms where you can do education courses and have immediately set yourself up as gated content, which people pay for your content. So if you've got intellectual property and you've got ways that you provide your services, you can record that all as content, as videos, as engaging um, ways to reach new clients, put it behind a, a platform and open that up to the world overnight. I mean, that's the kind of reach that any healthcare provider can have. Um, and those are the kind of platforms and tools at everyone's disposal. So you can reach a bigger market and uh, reach more people. There's so much value in what you just said there. And uh really encourage um, listeners who want to connect with you to reach out uh, because whether it's a five-minute chat with you or um, engaging you to help them with um, transforming ideas and potentially um, uh, launching ideas uh, through the uh, ecosystem, uh, there's a ton of value there with Marketplace Ventures. So, uh, Tony, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking with you. Pleasure. No worries at all. Thanks, Yanni. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.